One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is God's word. Father, thank you for this church, for the people you've brought together today. I'm so grateful to be here with them and grateful for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. Uh, thankful for this, uh, this time I've had this, this week to study into this topic and just to think about the amazing gifts that women have brought to the church for so long um, and especially the, the ways that you um, brought them in and really uh, showed us their value. And so I pray that we would see it t- today as we study this, that we would um, engage with it well, ask the right questions, be pressed to know you more, Jesus, through this time and I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, so yeah, this is a this is our it's kind of like ladies' night at mission, I guess. I was thinking about I was thinking about the the irony of this, the like ladies' sermon in which then we eat pizza and watch sports, because that's what's about to happen. We're gonna put the Suns game on after this, so it's just kind of this great um, strange mashup. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, no, you know what? I love it. It's the perfect. It's the perfect way to have an evening where we talk about this because um, I, think it, I think it really speaks to something we're about here at Mission. So here's a, a quick little, you know, mission, the values we have here at Mission Church. Number one is the gospel. Um, everything we do, we want, we want it to flow from and speak to the gospel. The second is depth. Uh, we want to go in depth in the way that we look at things, in depth in our relationships, and so on. 
Uh, the third is community. Uh, so we want, that's where we're bringing people together who are different, uh, the, all the diverse parts of the, of the people of God and the community around us. We want to engage with that. We want to build into that. And then uh, creativity and the idea of being on a mission. So those are our, those are our values. And if we dig into this community piece, um, there's a lot there. A little piece on my journey. Uh, I was in youth ministry for years, and I began to question a couple of things. One was age and gender-segregated ministry. Um, I started to ask questions about that. And don't get me wrong, um, I see times, I see topics where it's better for, for you know, men to be together or for kids to be together and stuff like that. It, it's, I see those moments, but I think there's a lot of disconnection um, in our churches between the ages and, and the genders that doesn't need to be there. Uh, a few examples. When I was a kid, I loved being with adults. It probably was I had older parents. I was an only child. We're nuts. We have all kinds of issues, okay? Um, but, but I liked to be in the adult conversation. And I would go to, to youth group at church, and you'd play Chubby Bunnies or something terrible like that. And if you haven't ever done that, like, really, it's just thank the Lord that you didn't play Chubby Bunnies. It's terrible. So you stuff your mouth with marshmallows, and you, then you try to say things until you almost throw up. And as a kid, as an adult, that's never appealed to me, ever. And so it seemed like that was the thing to do, is you went to youth group, and you talked about Jesus a little, and you played chubby bunnies. And I, didn't want to, I really didn't want to do it. I wanted to be with adults. I wanted to hear the sermon. I liked those kind of things. And, and the same is true for me now. I mean, honestly, I think if I were to walk into a church and they said, hey, do you and your wife want to go to the young marrieds class? I'd say, no. Is there like just where, where's the room with everybody? Um, that'd be great. I'd like to be a part of that. Um, you think, you know, women don't want to watch the basketball game tonight? And there's some that do. There's, there's definitely, we've had, we've had some, there was a, a lady named Chessia who used to come to this church she was like downright aggressive about basketball. Like she knew way more about it than any of you, even Jared. And uh, it was pretty serious. And then back when we planted this church, um, or the church that led to mission, that one, the church that I, I planted called Midtown, one of the two, um, we had our first Super Bowl Sunday and we met at four. And so guess what? You're meeting right during the Super Bowl. And I, being the convicted Christian I am, you know, I was like, we're just doing it. We're going during the Super Bowl. There will be no men, and it's fine. And we had, all, we had more new visitors than that night than we'd ever had before, and they were all men. And I realized, maybe I don't really know what men want, you know, turns out. Um, you, you hear, speaking of men, you hear a lot of, in ministry circles I, I, that men don't want to share their feelings, and they don't want to they don't want to go deeper and talk about things. But we held the God, the God story retreats, and ladies, you guys, you all killed it. You had a beautiful retreat. The guys, we had a full house, and they're weeping. I mean, telling everything. And you go, apparently, apparently in this community, the guys do want to do that. In some circles, it's not the case. But look, all I'm saying is some of the stereotypes don't always fit. And, uh, and I think I've begun to question some of that stuff. So when you ask the cursory question of the Bible, you know, age-segregated age ministry, I mean, 
You don't see that in the Bible, not in the synagogue, not in the early church where there's one per city. You don't see it. You don't see an old person ministering, a young person ministering, a middle-aged. You don't. They're all together. Then, then you come to gender, and that one becomes more difficult, I think. That's, it's harder in the Bible. There are some things in the Bible that bring up some real questions. Um, you have like 1 Corinthians 11, there's this talk about, you know, when you pray and prophesy in the church, and it's being spoken to men and women, when you pray or prophesy, which is usually to speak the words of God in the church, um, you know, men shouldn't cover their head, women should cover their head. So here in 1 Corinthians, you have women prophesying, praying in the church, covering their head. Um, you've got Paul saying things to Timothy about when he allows women to speak. You've got, you have all these things, and it's like, what is it? What does it look like? What do we do with this? What, is it, what does it look like for men and women to follow Jesus uh, together? And that's really the rest of the sermon. That's, that's what we're going to just talk about for a while. And I, I want to say it's, this is not exhaustive because there would be no Suns game in your future if this was exhaustive. We'd be here for two weeks straight. Um, I can point you to books, resources. If you want to go deeper, feel free to talk to me. I'm going to try to give us a scan on this topic that I hope will be helpful. Uh, last year, we had this conversation too. We were talking about not like the types of disciples, but discipleship in general last year. And we encountered Lydia in the book of Acts. And Lydia kind of breaks the mold because here is a wealthy woman, um, not married. We don't know why. Um, she's a seller of purple fabric, which was expensive. She's convening a prayer gathering by the river, which is where the God-fearing people would gather when there's no Jewish synagogue. And this was, this was one woman kind of doing all this. Paul comes into town, reasons with her uh, from the scriptures. She wants to be baptized. Her entire household follows her into that baptism. Um, they're all baptized. She's convinced that Jesus is the Christ. She invites Paul and all of his, you know, uh, traveling companions to stay in her home, which means she had a big house, and they all oblige and stay in her home, and then they leave town, and from everything we can gather, the church in Europe started right there with Lydia. Um, and Paul doesn't seem to blink an eye at that. Paul doesn't seem to look and go, I don't know, you know, gender. He just keeps moving, and that's how it went. Um, that's a very a similar thing to what we encounter in Mary Magdalene, I believe, interestingly. And that's not always the impression we get. So Trudy just read us um, a story of two women. And a lot of times we assume what was just read out of Luke was all about Mary Magdalene. It's probably not, actually. It's probably two or actually four women. Um, Mary Magdalene. So Mary Magdalene, we know from Luke 8 and other places, is a disciple of Jesus. She walks with the, she's following Jesus. She's learning from him. She's being taught by him. Uh, there are a lot of Marys in the Bible, by the way. I just, in case you, you didn't know, there's obviously Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, John Mark, who we kind of talked about in the last couple weeks, who is cousin of Barnabas and a traveling companion with Paul. He has, his wife was named Mary, and she hosted one of the Christian churches in her home. Um, there's Mary of Bethany, who is probably the first Mary, we think. There's a good chance the first Mary we encountered in this scripture who washes Jesus' feet with the ointment. Probably Mary of Bethany, um, who was Martha and Lazarus' sister. So if that's true, we're not 100%, but pretty sure 
um, then that means she was probably a prostitute of some form who has a conversion who Jesus holds up and says, she is the one who's responded to me the, the correct way, unlike the Pharisee, um, and, and which is shocking, right? Shocking. And then she, she becomes the one who sits at his feet and learns from him when her sister Martha is busy, right? And who sees her brother raised from the dead. And then there's Mary, Mary Magdalene. And Magdalene is um, it's probably not her last name. It's the city she's from, uh, Magdala. So that's, she pops up later in that verse, but it's, it's a different person. Almost 100% sure. Now, I've been talking about this TV show, The Chosen, that's out there um, because people are watching it, and it's a, it's a place where people have been thinking about the followers of Jesus. And Mary Magdalene is very prominent in this show. She's in the first episode. Um, she undergoes trauma. She's actually raped by a Roman soldier in that show. It, it, they don't go into the graphics of that idea. She has a rough life. She's gambling. Um, she's kind of lost her identity. She's changed her name. And then she begins to follow Jesus and eventually another woman joins them, and her name is Rama. And that's not a biblical character. It's a symbolic character for the other women who followed Jesus in that show. But in, in, in The Chosen, they imagine her to have had this very difficult life and to have kind of been the sinner, maybe more of the Mary of Bethany uh, type. And that's, you know, we don't, we don't have a book that outlines her early life. But here's, here's what I want to suggest is another reading you could get on this lady. Uh, on Mary Magdalene. Archaeology tells us that her city, Magdala, was a very wealthy city, and it's only been kind of discovered recently. Actually, a, a Mexican um, Catholic, uh, I forget, so he's part of some religious institution, bought a plot of land in the area where Magdala was, was going to build a biblical center and began to dig, and you have to do kind of excavation there, and they found a, they found a synagogue where he was going to dig. And it's not just any synagogue, it's nice. And they found relics in there that have like imagery of the second temple. And it's, like, it's a pretty ornate and incredible synagogue. And so what you start to piece together is, here is this community that's on the Sea of Galilee. So they would have had commerce and, and industry. They've got a beautiful synagogue. There's wealth here because the people were able to build a nice synagogue. It's, it's actually a very... Um, it's a very impressive place. And this is her hometown. And every time she's mentioned, her town is mentioned. And you notice with a lot of the other women, that isn't the case. So it's like, it probably speaks to two things. One, she was probably very known in her city. And the city um, was a very known place worth mentioning. So here's probably a fairly prominent woman from a very prominent city. It's kind of like, you know, you could name off, I don't know, like, I was trying to think, like, who's a prominent person whose name everybody would be like, oh, right, I don't know, Kardashian? I don't know. Like, it's, but it maybe has that kind of effect where you're like, I know who that is. I know who that is, right? What, however you feel about him, you know who it is. And we tend to hear because Jesus, you know, had cast seven demons out of this person, right? And our heads go, at least mine, I go to like, oh, this was like a street woman, you know, like, and she had issues but look, like I just, I just mentioned a family name, and you know, there, there's plenty of wealthy women in their penthouses that are, might be oppressed and under some bondage, right? Like it's not just women of the street, men of the street. It's people of all stratas of society, right, are affected by the darkness of evil. And so 
Imagine that, that potentially here's this influential woman, wealthy woman, who's very well known, and then it starts to make sense that the people that are named after her are like Joanna, King Herod's household manager's wife. So now she is in the ruling class. So this is somebody with status as well, who is listed under Mary Magdalene as somebody who's kind of come along with her, and then Susanna, who we don't know a whole lot about. But, but what we know about the three of them from our scripture is they fund Jesus's ministry out of their means. You know what that little phrase means? This is three really wealthy ladies that are paying for everything the disciples are doing in Jesus. That's what that means. And it kind of breaks your paradigm a little. Doesn't it kind of just like break apart some assumptions you could have about this, this woman, these women? You start to imagine it differently, like, oh, what, who were they? And these, these are like legit women that did pretty incredible things, decide to follow Jesus. And you just start imagining things like the apostle Peter comes over to Susanna and is like, hey, so I'm going to go to the market and then like, you got like 10 bucks because um, I got to get some bread and I'm broke. My wife's at home. I, you know, haven't really been working. And Susanna's like, yeah, here you go, you know. Love you, Peter. You're doing good out there. You know, go get the bread. It starts to change your perspective. And commentators note that Luke, who's writing to this Theophilus, telling him his story, he lists these women in such a way that it's pretty evident that Theophilus knew who they all were. So these are, these are prominent, powerful women. Now, my point here isn't just to say the socially strong follow Jesus, because Mary, who we read about first, Mary the sinner, is the one who ends up sitting at Jesus' feet and just learning from him too. And so, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think it's that shocking. Even in the Bible, when we just strip away some of our assumptions, it's not that shocking that women were strong, independent, um, valuable members of social movements and society, it's actually not that surprising when you look at something like Luke 8. It it just seems kind of assumed. So that maybe isn't shocking. But I I want to talk about two things, something that may have shocked the original audience, um, how it's probably shocking to, to our modern audience in a couple of different ways, the way that these women are portrayed in the scriptures, and then I want to make a couple of what I'm sure are thousands of possible applications, but just a couple applications. What was, the, what was shocking? So I don't think it was shocking that women had money. I don't think it was shocking that women had, had status. But to the early readers of the gospel, um, of the gospels, it would have been likely surprising that a rabbi teaching the words of God and and leading a group of people, somebody that they saw as probably a spiritual and even political leader at the time, it probably was surprising that there were as many women with him as there were. That doesn't seem like a normal practice because if you were going to be a a priest, A, you had to be a Levite, so that's very specific, and you had to be a man. And so for a rabbi who's training, giving religious training, I mean, to have this many women around is surprising. It was, it was different, okay? So they, I think they would have been surprised by that. And the New Testament develops, there's kind of this interesting trajectory, and if you think about it, um, it, it would have been an interesting thing to deal with, this change, if you would have been a Jewish person in the days of Jesus. So the Old Testament covenant was given to the Jewish people only. You could convert in to Judaism, 
but it was given only to Jewish people. And then you needed to be, as a Jewish person, you needed to have faith. We learned that it's not enough to just do the rituals. I mean, Jesus you know, says such things, Paul says such things, but even in the Old Testament, God would say, look, your sacrifices are abhorrent to me. Don't do your sacred assemblies, but you need to actually like live out of these words, which is to say like you need to actually believe these and be transformed by these. It can't just be that you go through the motions. So they needed to have faith, and they were given a sign. It was circumcision, and it's given only to men. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but the, the promise is passed through their lineage. And so the sign is given to these men who then pass the lineage on in a way, and that's how the, that's how the promise or the covenant of God is pushed forward, and then you could convert into that. But in the New Testament, God's promise is opened to all the people that have the faith like Abraham had, who believe God. It's open to all of them. Um, because a new people or a new nation is formed in the new covenant. And it's, it's like a spiritual family and a spiritual kingdom of those who have faith. It's not residing in the Jewish nation anymore. And so the sign changes. It's no longer circumcision, right? It becomes baptism. And now it's given to both men and women, interestingly, right? And all people are called some amazing things. Like the Apostle Peter calls all of the people in the church priests, which is shocking. And he says, you're all a spiritual temple. Um, a, you're all a kingdom of priests. And those are, those are words that would have been like, wow, what? What does this mean? And it was shocking in several ways. It was shocking that men and women were all called priests. It was shocking that people of other races were being called a kingdom, even though they hadn't entered in through like all of the Jewish passageways. That was all very alarming. Because um, this, had, you know, something that had been restricted to men of the tribe of Levi priesthood is now being declared over everybody. Like we... I can say that to you, hey, Bible says you're priests. That doesn't land, I think, to us in kind of a Western individualistic society. We go, of course I am, you know? I'm the best. But to them, that was like shock, like, whoa, wait, how in the world is that possible? How is that possible? And this sign that had only been given to men, circumcision, is replaced by this more inclusive sign, baptism, that's now given to, like, you're, you can be almost any age, you could be man, woman, you come in and you're baptized. And it's, it would have been absolutely, absolutely surprising. So you see, when you're reading the New Testament letters, you see the apostles are explaining this over and over, and they're having to go back into the Old Testament and say, look, God always said this day was coming, that the Gentiles were going to be concluded, or like the prophet Joel had said, God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh in the future. Your sons and daughters will prophesy you know, this is like, whoa, that's surprising. It's surprising that the Spirit would be poured, poured out on all these people, not just given in like brief little increments, and surprising that your sons and your daughters are going to carry forth the word of the Lord. That's surprising, because that was only what Levite men could do. This is all shattering stuff, okay? So that would have been very surprising for them. And then, um, and, and everybody knew Back in, in Jesus' like after Jesus had died and the empty tomb had been found and 
He'd been declared to be risen. You know, who, who knew the most about that? This was also surprising. It was the women. They stayed at the trial. They stayed at the cross. They went to the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene, who we read about, is the first evangelist, and every gospel mentions this, that she's the one who believes first and goes and declares it to the apostles. And that's surprising. That's another, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, kind of internal proofs of the authenticity of the Bible. This is another one of those. Because in this day, in Jesus' day, if you're, if you're founding a false religion, what you're going to do is you're going to lean on an educated man of good standing's word, right? That's what you would do. Here we have the, a woman's word. She's the one who saw Jesus first and who heard the angel. And you would never put her as the, as the spokesperson unless that's what happened. And unless Jesus decided that was the first person he was going to talk to, which he did, right? And so that, it doesn't fit the false religion narrative. It's, it's surprising, very surprising to the original readers, okay? Now, if you, if you flip almost to the other side of the coin, that doesn't surprise us. I, none of that, I think, surprises us. If I were to tell you, like, hey, Jesus spoke to one person this past week, and it was Cassie. You'd go, okay, no problem, right? Sure, why not? And uh, that's, that's not something that would surprise us. But today, when we read this stuff and examine this stuff, the, the surprises are different. The first one, I think it's surprising to some that not all distinctions are knocked down. There's like, why aren't, they, why aren't there women in the 12 disciples then? Why not? I, th I think that surprised us today. Like, so, okay, so you got all these women following, but the 12 apostles, they're all dudes. Um, or, on the, on the flip side of our cultural moment, we're, more, we're surprised that there aren't, like, substantive declarations of gender roles. You know how many books? I tried to scan several books that are trying to define the gender roles this past week, and how many books have been written where it's like somebody's like, these are the gender roles. And then somebody else comes along, and they're like, no, 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 no. These are the roles. Shorter list. And somebody's like, ah, longer list. And I just read a whole thing about, or I was, I've been listening to a podcast about Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. And one of the big draws was like, he talked about the roles and what, especially what men are supposed to do. And it's like, people are like, yes, yes, give me more. Give me the, please give me the list. Like, I don't like that item on the list. Who makes a list without that one? And I'm with them, you know? That's, what people are looking for, and, and maybe more of the conservative side, like, please give me the list so I make sure I get the roles right. And we're surprised that we don't get these things. We don't get all distinctions knocked down, nor do we get handed in the Bible, you know, where Jesus, you know, Luke says, and the women followed him, but they only did these 17 things. You know, wouldn't that be like, wow, okay. And the men followed him, and they did 24 things. But the extra seven were very loving, right? Like, okay, well, I can get along with that. So progressives are surprised that, that the inclusion doesn't go all the way, and, and conservatives are surprised that there isn't um, this list and exactly what, what's the ceiling, you know, what's the tight definition, what's exactly what men and women can do. And in many circles, we have to admit, I have to admit, that, that, and I'm saying this about the Bible now, in, in church circles, the ceilings have been set 
many, many times, right? There are, are ceilings set, and they're not always biblical. Because you'll hear, hear someone say, you know, I, I'm for the traditional model, the traditional model, or the traditional family. And, and you have to ask, which one is that? That's a difficult question to answer. I mean, there's like the early 1900s American model. There's the ancient Israel model. And maybe you go, I'm for the early church. I want to take it back to the early church. Okay, which one? The ruling class early church? The merchant class early church? The hunter-gatherer early church? Because that they all looked different. The roles, there's still no list. And usually, often by traditional, what we mean, if we're being honest, what I mean, if I'm being honest, is that which I'm most used to or what is most compelling to me, um, that is, that's the more traditional thing I'm, I'm speaking of. Because um, you could say, you know, and somebody would say, ah, here's the role. Uh, the, man, the man leaves home and makes the money. Role declared. Okay. That works in industrialized society, right? But pre-industrial society, that men didn't leave home to make money, actually. And in a post-industrial society, they probably won't either. You're going to have a lot more work from home stuff. You're going to... So which one? You know, how does it work? I remember reading about Wendell Berry, and he's kind of, if you know him, he's a social commentator, kind of an ecology... Uh, writer, and he, um, and he, and so he's a writer and a farmer, and he wrote an essay on how his wife, you know, would come in and edit his work, and, and he got blasted, but like subjugating his wife, and he, he writes this essay, which is great, because it doesn't fit any category you'll ever look for, but he just goes off on like, he, he's like, I'm not even going to talk to you about like feminism or masculinity, because all, you don't even understand just how societies have worked you know, before 100 years ago. You don't get it. You don't understand that people, like families, children, husband, wives used to all coexist. They all made the money together. They cooked together. They worked together. They all, like, and grandma and grandpa too. And, and Anyway, it's a good essay. And it just makes you scratch your head and go, oh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, women are domestic. They should cook and do the laundry. Okay, I mean, I don't know. Jacob and Esau, their whole big debacle, they're both cooking, right? I mean, there's an ancient, you know, cooking men. So, I don't know. Um, you know, there can be things like, uh, the whole family is supposed to come home every night and do devotions together. Um, well, if you're in the ancient merchant class, you're gone for months. Somebody's gone for months. I was reading about the Westminster Assembly where the, you know, some of the great reformed, like, confessions of the faith happened. These guys left home, and this is pre-FaceTime, for a half a year to work out the doctrine of the church. And you go, what are their wives doing? Well, everything is what their wives were doing. They were sitting there, you know, they're like, I think in the Greek it means the. And the wife is home. She is like slaughtering an animal. She's, you know, making a deal. She's getting it. You know, so which version of traditional model are we taught? That's we need to be really careful um, with saying that because we, we might accidentally, you know, layer something onto the Bible like a model that isn't there. So we need to be careful with that. I, I want to briefly, though, say let's look at some things that Jesus doesn't do that surprise us too. He doesn't, he doesn't redefine maleness and femaleness. Um, he invites women into more than their society we're inviting them into. Absolutely. More than... The nation of Israel had offered, and that's a system that, if you think about it, Jesus set up, you know, and he, he 
moves the trajectory, invites them into more, just as he's, he'd invited in the Gentiles, but he didn't undo anything kind of in the creational design. And then that, I know, that's like an antenna goes up, whoop, creational design, what are you talking about? What is that? And, and this is one where I think we get more principles than lists again. There's some interesting stuff. You, I mean, even if you're unchurched, you kind of know or have probably heard a little bit of the creation story of Adam and Eve, and Adam's created, and Eve is created out of Adam, and there's some major stuff in here. There's Adam, is at, he's created, he's sent out into the world to go and develop it. He's naming the animals. Now, you know, the, why did he name the animals? Did he name the animals because God was like, I don't have any ideas? No, he, he's given him a job, he's given him a role. He's saying, go and, and you know, creatively, like, shape your world that I've given you. And there's something, in, I think there's something in masculinity to doing that, to going out and to shaping your world, to having impact. They've done, they've done studies on men, even young boys, and there's, there's something about, like, many, many men, like the vast majority, there, there's a, at least a longing to shape something, right, and to go out. And I'm not saying that's not there in women, but I'm saying it's strong, and, and they shape it independently more often than not. Um, in women, early, early in their, in their lives, there's often a bringing together, a bringing together, a relational aspect to the way that they go out and shape the world. And so I, I would recommend, because this needs like a, a year's worth of sermons right here, there's, a, I think, a really good book that gets at some of this is just Men and Women by Larry Crabb. And he, he gets into, and I think he's, it's a very thoughtful, he's not giving you a list, he moves into this idea of like, what about the way that like men and women relate, even, even in their physical relationship as man and wife? What if there's some deep, meaningful stuff in there that men move toward, women bring together, there's connectivity, there's just some basic principles that you could find in how men and women relate, and then say, so how do they help and, and walk with each other and serve each other along those lines and, and build each other up? And so then, if you think in that, it doesn't, it, it's not like the list, like I do this, I do the checkbook, you do, it's just, it's more deep principles that you get after. Now, of course, in that creation narrative, right, Adam, he's given this, this role, he's, he's told to go out in the world and to shape it, and he's given these commands of God that he is to then offer to his wife, and, and you would assume to his children, his children's children, and you see immediately a reticence to do it. He, when, when faced with the moment of temptation and when he can help, he, he cowers back. You see in the temptation of Eve, Adam is like on vacation at this time. I don't know. He like left. It's like, where did, where did he go? And, and so there's this man who has this calling and he's also very afraid of the chaos of his calling. And then the woman, of course, right, is called his helper. And uh, I listened to, a, a long time ago, I listened to a Tim Keller sermon on marriage, and, and he said this, and I thought, I just, it came to mind. I was like, it, it's so true. He says, when I say helper, he, here's what you're hearing, daddy's little helper, you know? Like, and what that means, right, is daddy's little helper is like, daddy's digging the ditch, you know? His little helper comes along, got a little toy shovel, you know, and good job, you know, thank you so much for your help, and it really is all meaningless. 
That's what we hear when we hear helper, right? It's like, okay, thanks. You know, ladies, I'm sorry. That word has probably just been the worst. But that is not what helper is. Um, you know who help, that word help is almost always describing in the Bible? God. Almost always. Like think about Psalm 46. God is our ever-present help in times of trouble. That's the word, okay? Like it's, it's the word for what God brings into the equation. It's, it's almost as if Adam is meant to symbolize like the call of humanity in general, that humanity in general is supposed to go into the world and develop it. He's like represents the call. And the woman is there representing God's grace and God's power to enable that call. That's almost what that's like, like the help. The one's like the ever-present help in time of trouble. Adam immediately is in trouble, right? And what he needs is someone to say, stand your ground, I'm with you. Like that's, that's help. But what we see in the Genesis narrative is the fall affecting both of them, right? Adam isn't, Adam isn't moving forward. Eve isn't helping. You see brokenness on both sides. The other thing that I think we're supposed to see in men and women is the image of the triune God. I mean, this, this again, could be a sermon series all its own. But think about the, the Christian idea that there's a triune God. There's Father, Son, Spirit. Now, you always hear these things, right? Like, I mean, even just the wording, Father, Son. Okay, you have subordination. But is there ever a moment where Jesus Christ looks at the Father and says, you know what, I'm tired of being down here. Like, I would really like to be up there with you. Now, that's, that's what somebody did who gets cast down from heaven, right? But Jesus loves the Father and loves to serve and bring his work to bear to uphold the Father's will and his plan. And there's no complaint, no problem. It's like, I love you. And, this, and the Father isn't looking down on Jesus going, Hey, get down under to earth. I don't want to go. It's a mess down there. Like, God the Father's like, I am one with you. I will weep with you at the cross. Like, it's, there's not this tug and this push. There's absolute complementary nature going on there. And somehow, we're supposed to learn of that. And if our goal is to have no differences at all, we will not learn deeply about the Trinity. So, so the Bible, I, I don't think, the Bible doesn't have anything, with, anything to do with diminishing these core distinctions because there's too much at stake here. There's too much at stake. Things like the ideas of loving submission, help, influence, love, headship. And you go, oh, scary words, scary words. Those are all, those are words that are captured in the nature of God. They're not scary words. They get twisted. They get twisted, and they get defiled. But in and of themselves, they are good. They're very good. Now, but because of this fall, this fall that happens where things get twisted, this is why the Bible never allows, it doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with getting rid of all distinctions, but it also does not allow for some return to the traditional model as we would define it because all of our traditional models have been absolutely broken and oppressive. They have, because that's what sin does. We are prone to sin out of our maleness, our femaleness, to manipulate, control, damage, and abuse. 
We follow in the steps of Adam and Eve. We are, we are doing the same thing. The ancient version was broken. The mid-century modern version was broken. Our version today is absolutely broken, probably in ways we don't even recognize now. Some of us, and this is just, if you look over Christian history, some of the things we think we're doing right, we'll look back on, you know, or, our, or our kids will, and they'll go, oh man, what were they thinking? It'll happen. So that's why the Bible doesn't say get back to your traditional model, nor does it say erase all distinctions. So I'm going to give some applications. I promised I would. Um, how do we follow Jesus together? I know there's so much in here. I'm probably just stirring a big pot. Um, there's so much in here. How do we follow Jesus together? Mostly in all the same ways. I mean, I think that's like the, that's one of the big things I want to say. Mostly in all the same ways. There's no women's ministry under Jesus. There's no men's ministry. There's no youth ministry. Why is that? He's bringing us together. He's making us one. We are a kingdom of priests. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He's, he's bringing us together. And please hear me. I am not saying that men and women can't have times together or that that's not even best in certain circumstances. I know it is. But I'm saying we, I think we divide it up way too much. I think we divide it up way too much. I mean, just for one, like learning theology. Why is it that in most like theological education realms, it's, it's mostly men? Why? I mean, Jesus taught a lot of women. We're learning that. Like we've said, there are all these women are following Jesus. They're hearing all the same things. Mary of Bethany, not only a woman, but a woman with a really checkered past, is sitting at Jesus' feet, which you only did if you were their student. And, and, she is, and she is learning from him. They carry out his message. We have women deaconesses. We have women delivering and reading Paul's letters. We have women like Apollos, Timothy, discipled by women. Women need to, like, there's no reason they're not a part of the same conversation. We should all be a part of the same conversation, Okay? I would say this, the list of things we can all do together, men, women, young and old, is very, very long. Very, very long. It was interesting, Trudy mentioned to me the other idea, the idea of getting a macrame gathering together. And you know where my head went though? I was like, oh, for ladies. We had, and we had just talked about like how maybe that wouldn't need to be, the, but I seriously was like, yeah, macrame, ladies macrame. Why? Like, you didn't say that, you know? I think macrame is cool. I'm not, I would probably learn macrame. There's probably some other guys in here who'd learn macrame. You know, I'm sorry, I'll, you don't even know what macrame is. I'll get, we'll talk about it later. Um, but, but it doesn't need to be, why would that be a women's thing? I mean, the list, I think the list is just really long of things we could do together, is my point. Our culture's list, now I'll say, as progressive as it may seem, is often far more segregated than the Bible's. I think the Bible's list of things that men and women can do, to, can do together is extremely long. The list of things they might not do together is very short. And even our culture's list of what is masculine and feminine, I think, is longer than the Bible's. I mean, I think this comes up even in the, like, in the discussion of the movement, like the trans movement, like I'm transitioning to being more male. Like, what, what does that mean? Male according to who? Like, the, the list is actually, there's a long list of kind of constructed ideas of what maleness and femaleness are that aren't, and, and as Christians, we look in the Bible, a lot of that stuff's not there. Wearing a dress, 
I don't know, they all wore robes. It, you know, there's just, and, and some of the things have changed, right? Um, anyway, you know, Paul talks about head coverings. It's like, you know, women, it's shameful if you don't cover your heads. And it's like that, that meant something in their day. It meant, it meant something. It said, I, it said, I love my husband. I'm in submission to my husband. And I've said, you know, a million times, if, if somebody, is there a woman with a hat on today? No. If, if, some, if a woman walked in, you know, let's pick on somebody else. Abby up here. Abby walks in with a hat on, you know. She's got a Diamondbacks hat on. I don't go, look at her submitting to Corbin, you know. <laughs> wow, look at that. I don't. I just go, oh, she likes the Diamondbacks. That's what it means in our, it means in our society. She likes when that team hits the ball out of the park. That's what it means. And so you have to ask the question, like, not just what's the list, but what, what do things mean in my culture? I'm not, I, I'm, I'm for that. But I'm just saying our lists when it comes to maleness and femaleness are probably longer. Um, I do still believe there's a biblical call to some differentiation. There's, there's no place in the, in the New Testament or under Jesus or Paul or anybody else that I've mentioned here where, like, the husband isn't supposed to be, like, a man in his family. That's not there. It, there's not. There's still this call to be, but it's not like the list. It's like live out of this maleness that is, is, is way more like, it's, it's less descriptive. It's more based on these principles. And, and wives are still meant to like do this godlike helping, but that's not just feeding and picking things up. You know, it's, it's really not. It's this, like, powerful help that might really shatter a lot of our assumptions. They're offering power to bring wholeness. I mean, I, I think that is, is different. I don't know if you've read any early, uh, any Abigail Adams stuff. Uh, she had, she's one of the, the few women who, you know, was married to a president and was the mother of one as well. Her letters are gnarly. Like, I mean, they are, they are good. They are like, she's just like, I mean, and you start to get the picture of like John Adams, and I hope, and I, you know, I hope he gets the letters and he's like, yes, you know, and not going like, ah, but whatever the case, I mean, she has ideas, she has plans, she's like, this is serious, you need to take this serious, she's not afraid, but then her husband is like, glorying, like he is taking advice, and you see that he did in some of the history, and her son, you know, like, they, they're, they're like, wow, my mom has legitimate things to say. And that's kind of what you get out of Proverbs 31, which I read earlier. You have this woman, she is in real estate, right? She is buying and selling land. She understands business and profit margins. She is like, she is good. She is running things. And I always joke, like, what's her husband doing? He seems to be sitting around. Um, but he's not. That's not true. He's at the gates, which means he's an elder. And he praises her, Right? But like, she isn't, she's not like, you shouldn't be an elder, I should be an elder or something like, they're not having that, that's surprising too. It's like, he's an elder, she is like, but she is passionate. She is buying and selling land, she is in business, she understands profit margins, she gets things done. And he looks at her and he doesn't go, oh, you're threatening me. He goes, I love you, like, you are killing it. And she is like honoring him as well, like, that's, that's more like it. That's, that's sort of what the Abigail Adams letters feel like to me. And then sometimes we're just plain weak. My personal example of this is um, Mikhail and I would have conversations about prayer, and they would get a little conflictual. 
that she would, she would really want me to like in, initiate prayer. And she would say like, why don't you like, like pull us together and pray? And at some point I, I was like, I don't know, why don't I? And I realized, here's, here's the truth. Like there's a couple things. A, I'm, I get distracted a lot. I seriously am like, I'm like thinking about this over here and this over here. And then I also find praying like uncomfortable. I, I'm way more good at it, like by myself, in my car, on a walk, by myself. But when I've got to get somebody and say the right words, it's like, it's not something I do well. Now, do I think I'm called to it, especially with my wife and, and family? I do. But it is hard. It's uncomfortable. So I remember the day where I finally said to her, and I, I got to this point where I said, hey, will you just help me pray? Like, how about just when you think we should pray, I'm not against it. I'm just thinking about something else. So just say, I think we should pray and put your hand on my shoulder and give me the ball and I'll take it. Like, I'll do it. I will. And, and I think when we got over that hump, it was like, okay, because she is strong in that. She's more sensitive to that. She's thinking about, think about that like bringing together she wants to bring us together with God and bring us together as a family. I'm this independent, like kind of, I'm out chasing squirrels, right? And, and so, but for her to bring her power and her gift and go, I see, I see the need right now. I'm going to get you and bring you to God and all of us. And then not, I'm going to take over for you, Andy, but now take the ball. And that's been really, really helpful for me. And I know I have felt stronger as, as a husband, as a man, because of her. And I want to see more of that for us. So anyway, that's, there's a lot there. I, I think we need to ask the question of what are the principles that God's calling us to? What, what does it look like to, to biblically live this out? Not to erase it all, but also to live out of it in, in deeper ways. And then finally, I think... We all need to do this in submission. And there's the scary word, right? Submission. I want you to imagine this. The disciples are following Jesus around Palestine, right? You've got Mary Magdalene and these prominent women, you know, in the household of Herod, these people with money. You've got the disciples. You've got Matthew, and he's had this crazy life. Simon the Zealot has thoughts of slitting his throat about every 20 minutes. You've got Simon Peter, who's just like raring to go. And then you've got John, who's just like Mr. Perfect and is always just like, Lord, I remember everything that you said. The other, you know, I don't know. And you've got this mismatch of people and they're walking around Palestine following after who? Jesus, right? If you were to look at this group and say, who's the head? Peter? No. Matthew? No. Jesus, <laughs> right? It's Jesus. And they're walking around following Jesus. He's clearing up disagreements. He's sometimes, he's telling them this story that's got them all scratching their head and they're going, oh, I was way off. He's like, he's telling them things that like convict them to their core that don't let them do what they want to do. He's reorienting them to where they are looking at the kingdom of God instead of all the things that have them distracted. He's showing them how grace works and how their, their normal patterns of like doing things to be seen by others or achieving greatness is failing them and is actually going to undercut the kingdom's purpose. He's doing all these things. He is the head. They are all bowing their knee to Jesus, right? 
The same is true now. The same is true now. Think of Ephesians 5 and 6. Ephesians 5, I wish I could read it. It's just long and I could go on forever. But Ephesians 5 is often viewed as the key marriage chapter, but it's really just about the Christian life. Because it opens with this idea of living wise and not foolish lives. And then it has the statement that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in our English Bibles, there's a little heading that says husband and wives, which is not there. So get rid of it. And then it moves on to saying, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. It starts, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So so what does that mean? It means we're all submitting to Jesus, and then we're submitting to one another, right? And then he goes into these further instructions on something like marriage. But then he gets out of the marriage stuff, and he, of course, yeah, wives, respect your husbands. Husband, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Like, we're back to looking at Jesus again, back to how we're submitting to Jesus again. So we're following his pattern, and then children are told to honor their parents, and I would assume that if you ask Paul, he would say, well, yeah, because, you know, honor, honor your parents as Jesus honors the Father, right? Like, so let's look back up to Jesus, back up to God. Servants, obey your masters. Why is that? Like, because Jesus came down and served and honored God, the good and, bene- you know, beneficial master who loved him and wanted the best for him. And masters, how should you treat your servants? Ah, the way that God the Father loves the son who is serving him, but is his equal, is not somebody that he's trotting on or anything like that, right? And then it goes on to say, okay, all of you, now we're in Ephesians 6, all of you who are learning these patterns, men, women, children, servants, masters, take up the whole armor of God so you can endure the temptations and the trials of this life. You need the spirit of God, all of you. You need the word of God, all of you. You need the gospel, all of you. You need Christ's righteousness, all of you. You need God's truth, all of you. You need faith, all of you, to everybody. The whole thing, Ephesians 5, starts with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and it ends with Jesus providing everything you need. That's what that's all about. And in the middle of that, everything we're doing with one another is pointing us to Jesus. When we're connected to Jesus, it frames everything else. And don't, don't forget, it says we're all a kingdom of priests. And so we're all headed somewhere together. We're headed to a temple. We're headed to a city. We're headed to a kingdom. And this table points us there because this table, it does, it, it points us to two things. You know, Jesus on the night he's betrayed, he takes the bread, he breaks it. This is my body broken for you. It points us to that fall and that problem that we have, right? He had to break for us. He had to break for all of our sins, our our sins that come from our maleness, our sins that come from our femaleness. He takes the cup and he says, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. So you are cleansed. You have Christ's righteousness in his blood if you'll receive it, if you'll just have faith. But then there's this this idea of what Jesus says. The next time he's going to drink of the fruit of the vine, is going to be in his Father's kingdom with us. And in the book of Revelation, we learn exactly what that's going to look like. There's going to be a feast, a wedding feast. And Jesus is the one receiving all of his people, the kingdom of priests. He's receiving them all, 
And his church, all of us are what? We're a bride. We're a bride. We are joyfully like lifting our hands to him, offering all of our gifts, all of our power, everything that he's given us to worship him, to lift him up, to magnify his name. He is giving us himself eternal life, the rivers of life overflowing, a new city, all of our work taken and perfected, a new heavens and a new earth, his creation restored, and he's giving us all things in Christ. That is where we're headed. There won't be any discussion on that day. There will, there will be no discussion about who got to do what. There will be no list. There will only be Christ, and that's where we're going. I want to pray for us now, and I just want to invite you to come. As you come to this table, just, just really do think, this is the great equalizer. No one is better than anyone else at this table. Christ is everything. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. I'm going to pray. There's going to be a time of confession after that, and that's a time for us all. Just take two minutes. It's going to be silent. And, and you're just going to take time to reflect on it. If there's something you need to lay before God, if there's an argument you need to have with God, which, by the way, is fine, you can do that. Um, if there's something that you've been harboring that you need to confess to him, take that time. He, is, he, he loves, you know, when you can make your confessions to him, he's faithful and just to forgive you. And that's what the Bible says. He's not up there going like, you did what? He already knows. And he's just saying, would you, would you raise it up to me so I can cleanse you and so you can come to this table and be refreshed in him? That two minutes is for you. And then I'll be up here after that. Mike's going to lead us in some songs. We have giving in the back for those of you who support the church, and we thank you for that. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper as we sing together and prepare for our meal. Um, during that time, I'm going to have gloves and a mask on, so I know like feels like we're like, done with COVID in Arizona. It's great. Um, Phoenix Suns, 100% capacity. You're going to watch that. But hey, I'll still uh, mask up because you never know. You just never know what I've been doing this past week, kissing my wife and all that stuff. So, um, But we'll take the Lord's Supper together. And uh, I'm just going to pray for us and enter us into that time. And Mike will bring us out of that time of confession with a song. So let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the chance to be here with these people. Um, I, I know we haven't uh, solved all the problems, but I do pray that we have been encouraged to look to you first and foremost. I pray that we've been encouraged um, as, as men to honor the women in our midst, um, to, to love when they bring power and influence and resources. Um, I pray that here at this church that we would find ways to better uh, mimic what it looked like for you to lead your disciples. I want to learn from that. I want to see us learn from that, Jesus. So show us and teach us, please. Uh, for the women here in this church, I pray that you would do powerful things with them and in their lives, through their wisdom, through their intellect, through their power, through their gifts, through their strengths. I pray that you would continue to build up the kingdom as you have so many times. I think of, it seems like every person here who's come to Jesus at this church has come through the influence of one of our women. And I praise you and thank you for that. I'm so thankful that we've been able to see that in our midst. And so I pray that they would be encouraged and that you would build them up and that they would see their, their value and feel it here in this church. And so now I pray that you would make us one in you 
that you would encourage us in your cross. And if there's anything we can bring before your cross that you could cleanse us of, bring it to mind. If there's anything we need to contend with you over, bring it to mind and help us to meet you gracious and ready to forgive. In Jesus' name.